From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent here today with Richard Gershon, professor of law with the University of Mississippi School of Law and attorney William Bell of Bell Law Firm in Ridgeland. This morning, we'll talk about some new Mississippi rules of criminal procedure, which take effect July 1st, such as mental examinations for mentally ill defendants in jail. We'll also talk about the different types of trial courts and new rules regarding separation of powers in Mississippi. You can join the conversation today at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Brent here today with Richard Gershon, professor of law with the University of Mississippi School of Law and attorney William Bell of Bell Law Firm in Ridgeland. This morning, we're going to talk about some new Mississippi rules of criminal procedure, which take effect July 1st. We'll talk about mental examinations for mentally ill defendants in jail. We'll also talk about the different types of trial courts and new rules regarding separation of powers in Mississippi. You can join the conversation at any time today until 11 at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning to you, Professor Gershon. How are you today? Doing great, Sharita. How are you? Doing great. Uh, it does not feel like a Tuesday. Uh, William and I were just talking about that. It kind of feels like a Monday. It, you know, the the holiday usually uh, messes up my, my whole time frame of getting up. So It does. It does. But, you know, today I'm really happy that uh, on this Monday or Tuesday or whatever it is that William <laughs> Bell is joining us because this is a very timely topic. Uh, these rules have been – people have been working on these rules for about 15 years, and so it's great that they're finally being implemented and happy to have him talk about them today. Yeah. Well, oh, you wanted to also mention a few things that um, have been in the news recently. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, – We I recently saw last week that there was a reporter who was attacked, and uh, you brought up the idea to me about the law maybe not doing enough to protect reporters. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, Reed. I mean, this is it's one of those things where um, the uh, now elected congressman who uh, assaulted a reporter body slammed him last week. Uh, you know, that's not even considered a felony. It's considered uh, just a, a simple assault and maybe up to six months in, in jail. Whereas if you did the same thing to either a police officer or a member of the court or Congress, uh, you know, then, you know, that would be a, a much higher penalty. And, the and, you know, and really we look at uh, reporters as being a, a, an important part of our democracy, important part of our First Amendment rights, but also an important part of us having information. And we don't want reporters being intimidated in, in that way. So as it relates to the, the Constitution, you know, there's a part that says con- Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. So is the press uh, valued, you know, when it, as far as protection, uh, is the press valued at all or are they seen as less than because some of these rules don't even apply to them when it comes to assault? Well, by the Constitution, it's definitely valued. I mean, it's in the First Amendment because 
the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution understood the importance of a free press. And, you know, the, you look at uh, countries like uh, Nazi Germany where the press uh, was controlled by the government. You look at the uh, Soviet Union where, you know, the, the press was controlled by the government. Uh, people don't have access to free information that way. And we want dissenting point of views. That's how we, we make the best decisions. Yeah. Um, something else we want to talk about, this idea of gerrymandering. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has gotten involved. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what gerrymandering is, first of all, uh, for those who may not know? Well, you know, gerrymandering it, it is just a term that was uh, created really in the 1800s to talk about how you, uh, Congress, the people who are elected, actually draw the lines of congressional districts. And if you if you want to make an unequal playing field, what you can do is make sure that you draw within your district people who have voted for you and voted for your party. And it's a way to kind of ensure that um, that particular party stays in power. Um, and the problem really comes in, especially it's bad enough that, you know, there's that unequal playing field and that the, the winners get to make basically the rules about where the districts are. But then you add to that uh, the racial component. And so, for example, North Carolina's uh, gerrymandering rules have uh, have come under scrutiny by the U.S. Supreme Court because they really did have a, a, a disparate racial impact. The idea that uh, certain districts were designed so that uh, that minority voices would not uh, ever have enough votes to win that district. Uh, you know, that again, it's, not, it's an unplaying, unfair playing field. I always feel like the way our system should work is uh, one part. You know, if they're two party system, each party brings their best person and you know we get an opportunity to elect from those two as opposed to always having the, the playing field rigged so the Supreme Court's going to look at that that issue but gerrymandering has been you know unfortunately a part of our political landscape since the 1800s yeah um, and I, I saw a quote in a, in a story it said that the, the court has said that too much partisanship is actually illegal um, and could you just talk about more of the implications and things that could come from gerrymandering and uh, minority votes being limited, you know, how much of an effect does that could that have over time? Well, it could have a, a great effect over time because, for example, depending on how you draw a district, you could have a uh, you know minority with a strong uh, vote, or you could basically split that vote in half and create two different two districts. You know, just based on where you drew the line. Uh, and if you look at congressional districts, uh, you know, there's no real rhyme or reason necessarily about how those lines are drawn. They're not, you know, s straight squares or, you know, parallel lines. Uh, and so gerrymandering really is that idea that, there, you know, you get a lot of squiggly lines there. It's like a, a snake that, that is designed to include some people in that district and exclude some other people from that district just to try to assure, uh, you know, that the, the vote happens the way the winner wants the vote to happen. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about, you know, separation of powers and, and things like that. Uh, but I think it's interesting um, with with this current administration, and I'm sure it has been the same in, in past administrations as well. But all over my Facebook page, I keep seeing things about um, people wondering if Donald Trump will be impeached. And uh, you presented a, a story uh, basically talking about the Constitution and can the president be indicted? Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? You know, there was belief that he may have uh, obstructed justice in some way uh, dealing with the investigation with Russia. Uh, but I've read that, you know, presidents are immune from indictment, I guess, depending on what it is. But from a legal perspective, you know the truth. So what is it? 
Well, you know, nobody, you know, that's a great question, Sharita, and I'm not sure the Constitution really speaks to that directly. And so uh, it's only been tested a little bit, and that was back when uh, Nixon was president and he was forced to hand over his, his tapes. And so it's certainly in terms of whether the president's completely immune from, from lawsuit, he's not. But in terms of indictment, there's no expression in the Constitution about that. So uh, the the legal scholars all say, He's probably not subject to indictment, only subject to impeachment or removal. But then once a president is removed from office, they would be subject to indictment at that point. So you can't you can't probably can't indict the sitting president. But then, uh, you know, if it gets really that bad, then Congress could remove that president and then they could be indicted as no longer being president, if that makes sense. Yeah. I also saw this morning that the White House communications director has resigned. Um, it seems like there's a, a lot of shakeups in the administration, folks being uh, fired or getting, uh, you know, or resigning, um, you know, by their own choice. Uh, so who would take over that spot now that the, uh, the communi- communications director has resigned? Well, that's, you know, it's the executive branch. And so, uh, you know, we're going to talk about separation of powers today. And that really is somebody that the president can hire and, and fire. And in uh, this case, he resigned uh, he said for personal reasons, and you know, um, so they'll probably replace uh, replace him with someone else. Uh, you know, it's not even. You know, there's a lot of certainly a lot of uh, upheaval in this particular administration, but it's not unusual for people to come and go uh, in administrations or really any any employment. Yeah, it's just more in the forefront now because everything is on Facebook, it seems. Everything is, is being discussed on social media. So it seems that things are exaggerated a little more now, things that have been common over past administrations. But we live in the social media age now, and, and I'm telling you, folks just exaggerate things a whole lot. So, uh, But at least it is keeping people engaged in the political conversation. Uh, so that's something to think about. Well, we'll go ahead and invite our guest into the show, Attorney William Bell. Good morning to you, and thank you so much for being in. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about what you do um, as it relates to criminal law. Well, um, I personally handle cases really anywhere from municipal court to circuit court, felonies, misdemeanors of all types. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Yeah, well, it, it's... It can get pretty complex. We're going to be talking about these different kinds of rules, uh, Mississippi rules of criminal procedure that have changed. How often do these rules change? Not very often. Uh, Richard mentioned, I think, a few minutes ago that they, the uh, the committee had been working on this, uh, this set of rules for years. And it's really uh, it's something that we've needed for a long time because there was such a... Uh, hodgepodge of rules. There were statutes that had procedural rules. There were rules for circuit court, county court. There's another set of rules for justice court. And of course, justice court and municipal court, they uh, they handle felony cases in the beginning, say, for a preliminary hearing where a judge has to decide if there's probable cause to send it to the grand jury. And then, of course, it goes up to circuit court. So uh, there were just all these rules that just, they were confusing. There were different, there were statutes had times that you could file an appeal, and then there were court rules that had a different time. And this this really did a great job of pulling all that together in one set of rules that applies in municipal court or city court, as some people think of it. Uh, justice court, county courts, uh, circuit court, it applies to to all. There's a separate set in there for uh, Justice Court, but it's, it's regarding discovery rules. But 
Uh, other than that, it, it applies to all the courts and really consolidates it into one set of rules, which is really great. We've, we've needed that for a long time. So um, who typically benefits from these rules? Are these rules, uh, the, the changing of them designed to protect uh, the defendants? Uh, do they help out the lawyers, the judges? Uh, who, who do they typically benefit? Well, it benefits everybody. It, make, it, it makes it uh, more, uh, it, it makes it easier for the judges and the, and the public defenders and the, the private attorneys and the, the prosecutors. Uh, it's uh and, and the defendants it's 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 uh it makes it uh, i'm not sure easier is the right word it just makes it more uh it just makes it easier to understand easier to apply the rules and and you know if, whether some people want to admit it or not when somebody's arrested they're uh, they're presumed innocent mm-hmm. until proven guilty <clears throat> until they either plead guilty or a jury finds them guilty or a judge finds them guilty in justice court or municipal court so uh, it makes it it makes it it's just better for everybody it makes it, it it makes it's a more streamlined process for people who are arrested and everybody judges and everybody else go ahead professor Gershon. well i was going to say you know one of the one of the things that that people like uh good attorneys like william bell and other criminal defense attorneys do you know people will say how can you defend uh these people who are accused of crimes and and they're part of their a big part of their job is to make sure that the state and the prosecution plays by the rules and, and up to this point it, it's been hard to know all the time what those <clears throat> rules were because they were disparate from court to court so you know at least at least uh, you know in terms of being a defense lawyer you know knowing that every court will have the same set of rules will make it much easier i would imagine and and that's that's a good point because uh of course professor gershon you know who blackstone was he wrote the wrote wrote all about the the old common law and that's still around in some shape, form, or fashion in a lot of places. And one thing that he said and that uh, Thomas Jefferson and I think Benjamin Franklin got credit for it too, among others, and, and, and it's been around for really hundreds of years, and that is that uh, the way the whole system is set up, especially in this country, is that uh, that old saying that, that Thomas Jefferson and those others used, which was 10 guilty men should go free before one innocent man goes to prison hmm. and and that's an important concept that really gets lost in the shuffle and and professor gershon you you're you know you said you know everybody should play by the rules and it's you know if if uh you know if the, if the court system and law enforcement and everybody else in the government's going to ask all of us to play by the rules, then they need to play by the rules themselves. And this makes it easier on everybody. Yeah, I just saw a story this past weekend of a guy who had been jailed for over two decades for a crime that he didn't commit. And, you know, they may get some kind of financial settlement, but it's never going to replace all that time that was taken away. So that's interesting, the idea, because when you think of somebody who may have committed a criminal offense, uh, most people probably would deem them guilty immediately. But there are folks who are suffering in jail who are possibly innocent. Well, and that's and that's a good point. There's a uh, there's a statute that was passed several years ago. I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember what year, but uh, off the top of my head, but it was uh, uh, it requires law enforcement to maintain what's generally referred to as biological evidence, DNA evidence, because uh, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of people who've been, as you pointed out, Sharia, in prison for, for years, 
sometimes 10, 15, 20 years or more, and they didn't do it. Mm. And, of course, some of those older cases, there was no, there was no DNA testing. You know, right. they would look at hair samples and say, well, it looks like the same kind of hair or something like that. I mean, that's, and then, you know, lock somebody up for life for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and now we can go back and, and test that. And, and, you know, unfortunately... Some people just they don't have the resources to to hire ex, expert witnesses these days to to do the kind of testing, whether it's mental health testing or testing DNA evidence. Uh, some of those to get to get the good ones, they they cost as much or more than lawyers sometimes, mm. and and people just don't. Lot, most people don't have those resources, and and it's unfortunate, but uh, it just is what it is, and. But, but you know there are pl- there are rules in place where the courts can appoint experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then th- that helps some. And there's the of course the Innocence Project. They do a lot of good work with uh, with coming in and testing. They right. they raise their own money and they can they have some a fair amount of resources to help people out with that. Yeah. And before we go to the break, I wanted you to kind of talk about some of the uh, legal issues that are addressed in each court. You mentioned municipal court and municipal court, which is also known as city court, justice court. But there is also county court and circuit court. So what are some of the issues that you would see respectively in these courts? Well, in in municipal court and municipal court and city courts are, of course, in whatever city they're in, they're they're jurisdiction is limited to the city limits and then outside of the city limits uh, in each county the justice court and of course justice court can do handle cases from inside the city limits they can handle any any case in in their particular county uh, but mu- generally uh, municipal court and justice court handle uh, at least through through the entire process uh, misdemeanors uh, traffic offenses, DUIs, simple assault, uh, non-felony cases, misdemeanor shoplifting. Um, so, uh, but again, they hand, municipal and justice court handle felony cases at least initially when they might they might set the bond. They might be the municipal judge or the justice court judge sets the bond or says or if it's a more serious offense, they might deny a bond and then and they have a preliminary hearing, which is. Uh, preliminary hearing is something that's handled a little differently in these new sets of rules that we can talk about later if we have time. And so. Uh, All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue talking about some new Mississippi rules of c- criminal procedure, which take effect July 1st. If you're listening this morning, you have any questions about how the various courts work, municipal, justice, county, circuit, you can give us a call if you have any questions or comments about criminal defendants' rights. 877-MPB-RING is the number. 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent here today with Richard Gershon, professor of law with the University of Mississippi School of Law, and attorney William Bell of Bell Law Firm in Ridgeland. 
This morning, we're talking about some new Mississippi rules of criminal procedure, which take effect July 1st, such as mental examinations for mentally ill defendants in jail. We'll also talk about the different types of trial courts and new rules regarding separation of powers in Mississippi. If you're listening this morning and you have any questions or comments about uh, the way these courts work, municipal, justice, county, circuit courts, you can give us a call. Uh, Maybe you've dealt with some issues in either of those courts and you want some information about your rights, you can give us a call. If you have questions about the rights of criminal defendants, 877-MPB-RING is the number. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. All right, so let's get into uh, some of these rules now. Uh, a lot of these are like way over my head, but you'll be able to explain them. Uh, when, it, when, it, when we get into some of the more important changes, uh, talk about this idea of summons instead of an arrest warrant. What is that about? That's a new rule that uh, really helps law enforcement and helps people charged with crimes and it helps the system because it, it, under the old set of rules if if someone was charged with a crime then there's an if, if a judge finds probable cause that they committed the crime then the judge would issue an arrest warrant and uh, and then the the sheriff or the police officer would have to go pick the person up or or if they didn't turn themselves in, which most people don't. So this is a this is a new tool that, that the courts can use, e- even in some felony cases, that uh, allows a judge you know, on a case-by-case basis to issue a summons for, for someone who's charged with a crime to show up in that court on a particular date at a particular time, and that person can show up and they don't actually you know, they don't have to use law enforcement resources to go to go chase people around the countryside and try to find them and serve these search war- I mean these uh, arrest warrants and haul, haul them into jail and book them and they can they can spend time on other things and and then this person can come to court on that particular day and then the process goes from there so it makes it it's going to make it easier on everybody because it's a uh, it'll streamline that process. Now, what is a summons? How does that work? Well, it's uh, you see those a lot in civil cases, where if somebody gets a summons, it, it'll say you got to answer this within thirty days. Or in some chancery court cases, it'll like child support cases, it'll say well, you got to show up in chancery court on this day at this time before this judge. And uh, so. So it's a summons, a lot like a like a civil like a civil case. It it's issued by the court, and then it has to be served on the person. Of course, if they already have a lawyer, sometimes a lawyer could uh, you know help work through that process and and get the person there when they need to be there. And and it's uh, but it's it's essentially just a, a piece of paper that says you got to show up on before this judge in this court on this day at this time. So what happens if an individual does not show up? Well, at that point, uh, the judge probably would issue an arrest warrant or a bench warrant, as they call it, and then then law enforcement would have to to go pick the person up. Now, William, I, just a question, you know, procedural question in terms of uh, you know constitutional rights. We always see on uh, on you know police shows and things like that, you know, people being read their Miranda rights after they're arrested. 
Would a summons uh, also uh, give rise to someone uh, having the, those same rights, or, or would that be different than the way an arrest warrant would work? Well, of course, they'd have the same rights, and really, that's a good question because ideally, the way it would work, if someone got one of the got a summons, that gives them a time to say, say, if someone got a summons today to show up the middle of June, for instance, say a couple of weeks then that gives them time to to go find an attorney and and uh that you know they're not going to law enforcement's not going to come out and talk to the person probably unless it's a serious crime that they're working really hard and the person can get a lawyer and show up in court in a couple of weeks with their lawyer and and uh really it uh i guess the way you ask that it could you would think of course, we don't know for sure. It it doesn't it doesn't go into effect till July first. But uh, seems like that would actually alleviate some of those problems. And that's and you know, Sharia said asked early in the show, who does this help? Well, it helps everybody. It helps law enforcement because they don't have to spend time and resources chasing chasing people around with arrest warrants. And and uh, but at the same time, the defendants can it gives them time to get a lawyer to protect their rights and before they actually have to. Uh, step into the court system. So if an individual cannot afford a lawyer, will they just be given uh, the, a, a public defendant? Uh, how does that work? It, any, even in justice court, municipal court, uh, all the way up to circuit court, if someone's indigent, of course they have to fill out an indigency affidavit uh, that shows the court that they, that they don't have the resources to hire a private attorney and then they'll appoint uh, appoint a lawyer to represent that person and around the state depending on the size of the county and the city and for instance Hines County has an office a freestanding office the Hines County Public Defender and they have several lawyers in there who uh, who work uh, mostly in circuit court to defend people when when they're indigent and can't afford an attorney and other you know, other other places other counties just have a list of local attorneys who are private attorneys and they they just go down the list and just rotate through the list and appoint people that way. Now, uh, these rules are going into effect July 1st. So any decisions that have been made prior to, uh, you know, punishments, uh, all those things stay in place. Um, is that correct? Because the rules are changing, you know, whatever kind of punishments were suffered uh, before the rules were changed, they they remain the same, right? Right. You. You kind of backed into a separation of powers question without probably without realizing it. But, okay. <laughs> but the yeah, the punishments are set by the legislature. You know, whether it's DUIs or shoplifting or capital murder or somewhere in between. And uh and that's what's that's that's one thing um uh, in fact if you look at the Supreme Court order from December that uh Justice Anne Lamar signed December thirteenth and she's she uh, retired at the end of the year, but uh, she, it's uh, it references a case in there that's uh, from 1975, and and uh, in a nutshell, what that says is that the the courts can pass these procedural rules, e- even if even if there are already statutes on the books, the courts can pass these procedural rules about how to run the courts, uh, and that. And that controls over a statute, and, and the statute uh, under the separation of powers, the legislature sets the punishment, not not the the courts have 
within the range set by the legislature uh, have have the discretion to to uh, to hand out punishment that as the you know either through an agreement with the prosecutor or the judge and uh, and the judge sets it or uh, uh, but as far as to answer your question the punishments will stay the same because those are set by the legislature and there even there are issues about uh, in some ways about that I mean I think some of us think that really they ought to be uh, the punishment itself the the range of punishment could be set by the legislature but it should be up to the courts to decide what the actual punishment is in each case and their federal sentencing guidelines and things like that for example that take some of that power away from courts which to me has always seemed like an encroachment on separation of powers because we have three co-equal branches of government and they each have certain responsibilities uh so you know when, when legislature starts saying well you got you must sentence somebody uh this amount for a certain crime that to me takes some of the power out of the court's hands well it does and and my my old law school roommate at Ole Miss was a uh uh, is, a, is a judge in Florida in the Panhandle, and he's told me about that. How Florida has, uh, I think they have some sentencing guidelines that take a, a fair amount. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but they have some sentencing guidelines that are, I think, patterned to some degree after the, the federal guidelines. And of course, we don't have that in Mississippi. We have maximum and minimum sentences, but uh, we don't have anything that I guess, uh, Professor, you would, I think you would agree, we don't have anything that really. Uh, you could call sentencing guidelines no, per se. So. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue talking about some new Mississippi rules of criminal procedure. If you're listening this morning and you have any questions about criminal procedures, if you want to know about arrest warrants, summons, uh, preliminary hearings, the rights of criminal defendants, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. We'll also talk about the rights of mentally ill defendants when we get back from the break. All our lines are open. You can give us a call at 877-672-7464. That's 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest is Attorney William Bell of Bell Law Firm in Ridgeland. Today we're talking about some new Mississippi <coughs> rules of criminal procedure. I think I said mu. New Mississippi rules of criminal procedure, which take effect July 1st. And if you have any questions or comments, you can join the conversation. If you want to ask about how summons works, arrest warrants, if you have any questions about uh, Mississippi's criminal procedures, preliminary hearings, the rights of criminal defendants, Call us at 877-MPB-RING. If you have any questions about court appearances, 877-672-7464 is the number. We do have a couple lines open. The number is 877-MPB-RING or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. All right, we do have a couple calls. Don is in Jackson and has a question. Good morning to you, Don. How are you today? Uh, good morning. I'm doing fine, thank you. Right, what do you have for us? Okay, my question is, if you never 
never committed a crime, so you've never dealt with the the criminal justice system. And then all of a sudden, uh, a police officer accuses you of a crime. Um, You don't know how to respond. You don't know if you should immediately say, well, I'm not saying anything uh, without a lawyer present, because then making that statement seems to me makes you look guilty. But if you don't do that, then you might make statements that you later regret making without counsel. So when you weigh the balance of those two things, how do you how do you make that decision? Well, Don, of course, I can't give you any advice specifically about your case, but I can tell you that just generally with any anybody, any anytime somebody has contact with law enforcement. Uh, who is accusing them of a crime, uh, they need to get a lawyer. Because one thing that we see a lot in even misdemeanor cases and even felony cases is that sometimes people wait too long to get a lawyer. And people think, well, I, you know, I, I know what my rights are and, and the, you know, the rules, just with these sets of rules, it's, you know, there there are different not only rules, but statutes that have been passed over the last few years that really make it uh, make it uh, a lot better for people who are referred to as first-time offenders. You mentioned uh, not having any contact with with that system, and uh, and it treats first-time offenders more leniently, as a general rule, than than people who are repeat offenders, and as it should be. And but I guess the the bottom line is. Is it's it's anytime somebody's approached by law enforcement, they they should uh, they should get an attorney before it's too late. And you know, it's it's kind of like preventive medicine. I mean, we lawyers actually the, the interactions with a lawyer will cost someone less if they go to the lawyer before they have a problem or before they get deep into a problem. Uh, we you know, the more complicated the issue, the longer they wait. Just like going into you know medicine. Or going to see a doctor, you know, after a disease is spread, it becomes a lot more complicated issue, more expensive. That's right, and especially when somebody's liberty's at stake, it's that's uh, you know somebody could somebody could have a million dollars in the bank, but if you're sitting at Parchman and you're not supposed to be there, then it doesn't matter how much money you got in the bank. I mean, labor, your liberty is the most important thing, and and if your liberty's at stake, then uh, then you know. As 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 a rule, people shouldn't should never have any contact with any anybody who's trying to take their liberty without having a lawyer. All right, Don. Thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. Uh, we will go next to Paul, who is on the road, has a question uh, about summons. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. Good morning. This uh, new rule about summons uh, raised a lot of questions in my mind. I have a few. That's okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, first of all, I presume the summons has to be handed over to the person like uh, like uh, any kind of process serving. It has to be placed in the hand, uh, I assume. Uh, but what if the person can't – what happens if the summons cannot be served? The person's not in town or whatever. So that's the first question. Second question is, are the charges detailed in the summons uh, so that the person knows what he's being charged with, possibly? And the third question is um, – what was my third question? Um, what is he actually being summoned to? Is it a hearing, an arraignment? You know, what? I mean, he's not arrested, so it shouldn't be a plea hearing or something like that. 
So I'm kind of curious about all those factors. Well, those are good questions. It, if it can't be served, um, it's probably – it depends on how many times it can't be served. I mean, certainly it's, 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 it's possible somebody could be at work or at the doctor or out of town on something you know, legitimate where they're not running away and are fleeing. And so they may try one or two or three times to serve the summons, and, and if the person learns that, that – that the summons is out there, they, that would be a good time, for instance, to call a lawyer. And the lawyer could could call the court and say, hey, I represent this person, and, and you know, we'll go ahead and bring them in. It just, it, so it does, it, that's a way it could streamline that process. Um, uh, the, the summons, uh, the charge, I haven't seen the, the, the form, I don't have the form in front of me, but I, I would think the the charge would be in there. It's certainly, the, of course, the most important part of it is it tells you which court to go to and and uh, and in which uh, uh, you know what day and what time to be there, and which judge it is if it's a court that has more than one judge. The uh, uh, and I think your third question was uh, what are you being summoned to? That would be what most people refer to as an an initial appearance. It could be a uh, if there's a if there's been a charge filed against somebody and it's gotten to that point where there would be a summons or an arrest warrant issued, then that person would make an initial appearance for a judge to either set a bond or release them on their own recognizance or uh, or work out something along those lines to go to the next step. And of course, it would depend on what court you're in too. You might have to come back for a preliminary hearing. You could request a preliminary hearing, which is if we have time, we can talk about that for a couple of minutes. But that's that's uh, it would generally it would be a, an initial appearance. Okay, thank you for that question, Paul. We appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk about that pre- preliminary hearing thing in just a second. We have a few more calls to get to. Robert is in Meridian uh, with a question about legal procedures. Good morning to you, Robert. Good morning, folks. Um, uh, real quick on that last point about serving somebody, I know of a case where. Uh, a woman in a domestic dispute wanted to have an order of protection against the uh, husband. And the police officer that accompanied her to his job in the lobby of the hospital where he worked said that if he doesn't take it, when you reach out, just drop it. And that will uh, amount to him having been uh, notified about this order. But my, my question has to do with the pardoning of President Nixon by President Ford. The Congress is the law-making body of our government, if I'm not mistaken. And I see that pardoning as a precedent-setting act where someone hadn't even been charged, you know, let alone indicted formally. And I'm wondering if the law profession, the law schools, the judges, the professors, at the time that that happened, had any kind of negative reaction that might have inspired changes in the law so that that couldn't happen again. Well, really, there wouldn't be much Congress or in the state level the the uh, legislature could do about uh, about the president or, or governor having that power because it's in the Constitution. So it would require. While there are there is some leeway for uh, maybe in some cases for the legislature or the Congress to to maybe have some control over the procedure the uh the actual the power to do that is is in the constitution and and there was a you know that came up a, 
few years ago with Governor Barber when he issued pardons and and there there was some question about whether some some of the, some of them had published in the newspaper like they're supposed to and and the Mississippi Supreme Court said nope it's in the Constitution it's and that was actually a speaking of separation of powers that was a separation of powers question because the Supreme Mississippi Supreme Court said well we you know, if the governor issues a pardon he's got the right to do that and there's nothing we can do about it even if it's even if they didn't publish. It's kind of interesting, you know, with Ford. Ford was not reelected, uh, and a lot of people think it was because he pardoned Nixon. But he cited a t- 1915 uh, U.S. Supreme Court case called Burdick versus the United States, which basically says if you pardon somebody before they're found guilty, there's an implication that they are in fact guilty. Accepting the pardon says they're accepting that guilt and then accepting the pardon. So some some people would argue that that's Nixon was in, in essence admitting his guilt by accepting the pardon. All right, Robert, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. We'll go next to Richard, who is on the road, wants to talk about misconduct by police. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Hey, what do you Uh, have for us? About a year ago, I filed a charge against a a renter of mine who forged a receipt. All right, sent off the handwriting analysis and this sort of stuff. And about a year later, I called the the deputy was handling the case and he said, oh yeah, it just came in and I'm taking it to the Supreme Court, uh, not the Supreme Court, but uh, grand jury today. And the grand jury sent out an indictment for him and nobody that I know of testified other than that handwriting analysis. All right. So about another year went by and they finally caught her and uh, brought her into court. And the deputy and the district attorney's representative both testified that that information did not come back from the uh, crime lab. And subsequently, the case was dismissed. Who do I talk to? Well, um, who would you talk to? Well, what, it depends on what court it was in, for starters. I, it would... You know, you uh, could. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Justice Court. Justice Court. Mm-hmm. The um, the Justice Court should have the records on it. Um, if it's, I mean, there. If it's in a, if it ever went to county court or circuit court in a county that's got uh, uh, that has electronic filing, uh, it's you know, it's all public record. And so you should be able to get that. And, of course, there's if it's forgery, it depends on how they charged it. For instance, there's something like false pretense doesn't have a statute of limitations. So if, if it's something that you wanted to pursue, you could theoretically just go refile it instead of spending a lot of time trying to piece together what happened before. I'm not saying I'm not telling you to go refile it because I don't know anything about your any, any the details. But but, uh, you know, there are. That might be an option you could look into. Okay, Richard, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate it. Um, we are going to go next to Georgia, who's in Jackson. Is a question about pressing charges. Good morning to you, Georgia. Hi. I want. I want to know, like, if somebody press charges on you, and you don't know that they had press charges on you, and a year and six months later, uh, you go to the police station, not just daughter, but they arrest you. Oh. Okay, so you were unaware of the charges and you just happened to be yeah. arrested for something uh, completely uh, unrelated? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So you want to know your rights as far as that's concerned? So if someone um, presses charges against you, do you receive some kind of paperwork? or? Well, uh, usually, again, that that kind of that's a, gets us back around, circles back around to this summons, this new summons rule. Under the new rule, instead of just issuing an arrest warrant that sometimes sits there for weeks or months because they can't find the person or they don't have the resources to go chase everybody around that's got an arrest warrant, which is understandable. The uh, the summons, the new summons rule, in in that in Georgia's case, might, maybe in that case the judge might have signed a sum, signed a summons or had a summons issued that uh, you know that they could go out that she, she could find out somehow about it if she had a lawyer or if she just knew the charge was filed because she said she didn't know it was filed. But the summons would be a way to serve it on her and say you got to come to court and not actually arrest her. That would have been an, that's an example of how that summons rule might have helped in that case. Okay. But now, you know, she just has to deal with it since the charges have been pressed. Yes. Okay. All right, Georgia, thank you for your call. We appreciate it. Uh, we have another call lined up. But really quickly, before we get uh, to Susanna, you wanted to talk about uh, rule number six, this preliminary hearing, which is uh, kind of works in favor of the defendant. I, under, under the old rule, uh, there what courts typically do is if someone's arrested and they bond out, then the courts traditionally will not allow them to have a preliminary hearing. And if it's a felony case, they'll, which, uh, they would just send it on to the, to the grand jury. Uh, under the new rule, if uh, the, way the, the way it's worded, of course, in actual practice, we'll see how it works out. But uh, if the way the rule is actually worded, if someone's arrested and they bond out, and they have not been indicted, they can. They have the right to ask for a preliminary hearing, and the court has to give them a preliminary hearing, mm-hmm. which is which is where, a, if in a felony case, a judge would decide if it's if there's enough evidence to send it to a grand jury or not. And if the judge says they're not, then they release them, and that's it. Okay. Uh, Susanna is in Mobile and has a question about fraud. Good morning to you, Susanna. Hey, good morning. Um, uh, uh, this is a difficult question to ask, but I really appreciate um, this input. Um, fraud in Mississippi is there is no statute of limitations on it. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Well, there, it depends on how it's charged. Uh, there's a there's a statute. Okay. If, if there's a lawyer who gives you uh, bona fide papers and um, tells you to go and have them notarized uh, regarding properties in Mississippi, even though I'm in a different state, and then goes into problems himself and moves across the country, is that considered fraud? And how do I pursue that? Well, in uh, which court? Well, that's a... That's a tough question to answer because I, mean, I don't have enough details, and I certainly, even if I did, I can't give you advice on whether to whether to file charges or not. But uh, if, uh, but as far as where to file, I mean, in, generally with any case, at least in Mississippi, um, you can, you know, if, if part of the if part of the allegation, part of the alleged crime occurred in in Mississippi, then then in most cases you could file in Mississippi. And for instance, if now, if some of it were, say, in in uh, 
in Hines County and some of it were in Madison County, then you could file either place. Okay. The, pro- the problem with fraud and maybe why it's it's uh, so hard to pin down a statute of limitations too is that you got to prove that the person accused of fraud knew they were lying at the time they they lie you know they 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 made the representation and that their representation was made to induce you into doing something, and it's hard to prove what somebody was thinking at the time they uh, entered into a transaction. Yeah. Susanna, thank you for your call. We appreciate it. Uh, we have just a little more time left. Could you touch on uh, this new rule, number 12, which addresses mentally ill defendants and mental examinations? Yes, that's a, that's a comprehensive new rule that deals with, uh, with some really some issues that have been in the news a lot lately about defendants who are charged with crimes who are presumed innocent, sitting in jail for months and years at a time, who... Uh, who are under a court order to get, for instance, a competency hearing to determine if they're competent to go to trial or not. And because there are so few beds at Whitfield uh, at the state hospital to conduct those evaluations, uh, the, these these defendants who, who are presumed innocent sit in jail for sometimes years before they get an evaluation. And this rule uh, is meant to and I think it will streamline that process about competency hearings and insanity when someone asserts uh, insanity as a defense and, of course, intellectual disability. Someone's low IQ, and you see that a lot, in, uh, and especially in death penalty cases. Uh, you know, if someone's IQ is below a certain level, then, then they're not eligible for the death penalty, and that's we could <laughs> spend the whole day talking about that. That's a pretty complicated process, but... Uh, but but it's a it's a good rule, and it uh, and it even one one really important part of it that that uh, that we haven't had before is that it allows uh, it allows for people uh, who are charged with crimes who who have to have these these mental mental evaluations of one sort or another uh, to be to be evaluated as an outpatient. You know, mm-hmm. someone's not dangerous, and and they're not violent. They're not. You know, there's there's no immediate uh there's no chance of immediate harm to to themselves or others then you could uh uh you could evaluate them as an outpatient and then they don't have to take up a bed at the state hospital and it would it would make those it should make those move a lot faster uh several rules we didn't get to today are they public knowledge or um do only the lawyers know about these <laughs> <laughs> they they are in fact there's a good uh even for the lawyers out there there's a uh uh, on the Supreme Court website, if you go on the uh, if you go on the Supreme Court website, there's a there's a link. Uh, there are three links. There's a link for the rules. There's even a memorandum that the that the committee put together that's got it's about three or four pages of just highlights of changes in the rules. That that's a good place for lawyers to start and look at what the new rules are and what they're about. And it's just a, it's a nice synopsis. All right. Well, Attorney Bell, thank you so much for being on today. We appreciate you being on, and uh, hopefully we'll get you on again. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, uh, Professor Gershon, thank you for being on as usual as well. If you did not get to call, you can always send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. And don't forget about the In Legal Terms podcast, which you can subscribe to with any podcast app you may have, or go to mpbonline.org slash terms, and you'll see a way to subscribe on that right column. Stay tuned. Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress is coming up next on MPB Think Radio. Thank you.